everybody. Great to see you. It's so fun to have walk-up music. Only at Young Adult Ministry do we get walk-up music, so that's really great. So glad that you are here. I don't know about you, I have had a ton of fun uh, with this series, and I've heard from a, a bunch of folks. Uh, Darren's back here in my small group, and those guys are saying, you guys got to keep this going. So I don't know that it's going to keep going, but I definitely can say this is something we want to come back and revisit, because it's been uh, really rich and really meaningful, and just so fun to be with you guys, our young adults and our honorary young adults uh, who have joined us. So, so glad that you are here. We do have a big topic to dive into tonight, and it's a topic that we can, we're going to spend uh, a great amount of time on, and yet could spend a whole lot more on it. But we're talking tonight about the question, what is biblical justice? Um, we are in this sermon series on Sunday mornings on the story of God and talking about this, uh, this big story from beginning to end of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And last Sunday, we talked about the experience of God's people taken into exile and just what a really central event in biblical history the exile was. And what happens, the, the, the reasons that God's people are taken into exile uh, come back to warnings that they receive over and over and over again from the biblical prophets um, about two primary sins that Israel is guilty of. That is idolatry, elevating something other than God uh, 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 to the greatest place of allegiance in their lives and their hearts of devotion. Idolatry, and the second is injustice. The time and time and time again, the, the prophets warn Israel about coming judgment because of injustice. And so that's why we thought tonight would be a great opportunity for us to really dive in and talk about this question, what is biblical justice? It's also important that we wrestle with this question in the midst of the cultural moment that we're living through, because this word justice is kind of contested. There, there's some people that hear it and immediately sort of sets them on the defensive. There's this sense of the, the, some kind of a political agenda that's being imported in the church that maybe is even contrary to, uh, to the way of Jesus, to, to the teaching of the Bible. And so we find this word sort of contested and people get nervous about it in some, in some context. And yet it's a term and an idea that is woven throughout the pages of the Bible. The Bible talks about justice over and over and over again, the psalmist says, the Lord loves justice. And so we have to say, okay, well, what does it mean? What is, what is biblical justice? And we're going to do some of that work together tonight. I'm thrilled to have back uh, uh, my two friends, uh, Nancy, who is uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, one of my most trusted friends, somebody that started out as a student in my class, but we've just become so close through the years. She's now finishing a PhD at Dallas Seminary in Systematic Theology and is just such a brilliant and good person. And I'm so thrilled to have Nancy here as part of this conversation. In addition to that, we have uh, my friend Sam Juan. Uh, and uh, Sam has a PhD in Old Testament, uh, teaches an adjunct professor at Dallas Seminary, works with uh, students in their internships over there. Sam and I have been friends for 25 years, and so it's just so fun for me to have such brilliant friends that I get to do this with. So we're going to dive right in. And before we start talking about definitions and talking about passages, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the reasons why in uh, Christian circles, evangelical circles, um, this concept of justice sometimes feels like it's something other, something different, that it's an a, a, a outside agenda. And uh, one place that we can point to in history is in the early decades of the 20th century in the church in America. Um, there are other historical antecedents, and Nancy may chime in in some of that from a discussion we had via text earlier, but, but particularly for a Bible church like ours, right? 
Irving Bible Church. Bible churches come out of a particular sort of um, movement in the early 20th century that historians refer to as what's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And what you had is at the time, in the early decades of the 20th century, uh, many um, uh, Protestant denominations and institutions of higher education started um, embracing sort of liberal theological teaching from Europe that had kind of made its way to America. And what happened is many who were holding to traditional um, uh, Protestant orthodoxy found themselves uh, leaving or even being forced out of some of those Protestant institutions. And you had this split between what the scholars refer to as the fundamentalist and the modernists. And the fundamentalists wanted to do everything that they, that they knew to do to, to protect the purity of doctrine and the purity of life. And that's that fundamentalist impulse. I've talked about it in sermons on Sunday where if there's a biblical solid line, the fundamentalist impulse is take 10 giant steps back and draw a new line so that we don't ever get close to that line over there. There's this, this real desire to maintain doctrinal and moral purity that involve really a, a, an abandonment of responsibility to the broader culture. At the same time, you had then the, the, the modernists, and they're those who are saying things about the kingdom of God is the, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all humanity. And there's a real interest in justice. Um, but what happened is then there became this kind of distinction between the gospel, right? What we teach about, about what Jesus has come to do and our faith in him that, that gives us the assurance of God's forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. The gospel and what some refer to as the social gospel. That is, let's make the world a better place. Let's, let's build the kingdom of God here and now. The gospel, the, that traditional sense of the gospel, um, sort of became the domain of the fundamentalist and that social gospel became more and more the domain of the, the modernist. But that is a distinctly 20th century American phenomenon that is not true of historic Christianity. That historic Christianity always held the, the gospel and that concern for the broader society held those things together. Um, you can think about it with the simple terminology of you had the justification people, justification by grace through faith, and the justice people. And those became separated where historically they've always been together and biblically they're always together. In fact, the very words, we'll talk about this probably further on in the night, the very words uh, for justification and justice come from the same root word in our um, original Greek New Testament. And so part of what we want to do tonight and part of the, 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 the challenge that's before us here at Irving Bible Church in these days is how do we hold these things together? And so that's part of what we want to explore tonight. So before we kind of dive into a definition, any, any commentary on kind of what I've shared here, anything to kind of add to it or nuance from it? Yeah, I, I think one of the things I talked to you, I said I would push it back just about 80 years or so. And I think that's because we kind of see the rise of this liberal Protestantism specifically that's born out of a justice issue. So it's it kind of it's the doors are open to the rise of uh, liberal pro Protestantism because of the slavery debates that mm. come before the Civil War, mm. and um, 
Orthodox Christians end up landing in the wrong place. And so what you see is you see the split between North and South, you know, the Mason-Dixon line, but then you also see this doctrine of the spirituality of the church. And that doctrine is a way for specifically slaveholding or pro-slavery Christians to say, you know, our, our space is really just about the, the order of grace and what falls under the order of grace. And before this, you don't see this in Christianity, just like you said. Before this, you see this coming together. But in order to defend slavery, you see Christians saying, we've got to separate it. Because if we start advocating for any kind of social reform, it's going to bring slavery into question. And so you see that kind of setting the, the way, and then you've got that, you know, this movement. And, you know, I think we could talk about the fundamentalist modernist controversy, but nobody talk, wants to really talk about that. It's, uh, but, but it's really been there, and it's something that takes place slowly and over time. And this spirituality of the church, this doctrine, we still see it today, and I think it's part of this social justice, what is the gospel, that's not the gospel, social gospel kind of controversy that we're still kind of in the middle of even today. Yeah, that's good. I was thinking about it uh, earlier, even thinking about what God says, uh, or what, what um, the scripture says uh, about marriage, right? What, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, and yet that's what happened in the 19th and 20th century in America is these things that have throughout Christian history been held together. These things got separated. I see David over here. David and I had an email exchange that um, mentioned a, a book called uh, uh, The Civil War as Theological Crisis from Mark Knoll talking about the very, the very phenomenon that you're talking about there. Sam, any thoughts from you on this? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you framed it that way to begin because, and this is the synergy. We didn't plan this, but Nancy, that is exactly what I was hoping we could get to, was that you cannot separate this controversy and this struggle from race. Mm. Um, so there is a dissertation done by Mary Beth Swetnam a couple years back called Doctrine and Race. And what she does is she does an, a very scholarly archival research project into the black church, because this is the voice that's often been missing, because mm. the white... Uh, church was well represented in modernist uh, circles, and the white church was predominantly represented in fundamentalist circles. And what she found was that the black church was consistently, and her study covered the years from Reconstruction to the First World War. So good sampling. And what she found was that the black churches were incredibly faithful to orthodox teaching. Mm. So from a doctrinal perspective, they would have sided with the fundamentalists. Mm. But the reason they didn't is because the fundamentalists were actively using doctrinal uh, shibboleths to basically support racism and slavery. So this, this study covers Reconstruction and Jim Crow. Mm. So even after the abolition of slavery, it's clearly not a just world in America for people of African-American descent. On the other hand, you saw attempts by the modernist camps to try and uh, recruit the black church and say, you should be with us. We support what you're doing in the social realm. And they said, but we don't support what you're teaching. And because they were still very committed to some of these things that the fundamentalists would have absolutely appreciated. Um, orthodoxy, so meaning things like Trinitarianism, things like a traditional uh, soteriology, a traditional view of Christology. Yeah. So 
I think it's a fascinating uh, and tragic example of how this really was so embedded in race and that we lost an incredibly powerful and important part of our Christian witness because their voice has been so silent until recently. And we're, there are now people who are trying to recover that, and yeah. I think it's good work. Yeah. That, that held together what historically in the church has always been held together. That's right. right? This commitment to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus um, and the commitment to social reform, a commitment to the biblical vision of justice. So that's a great opportunity then for us to go, okay, let's do a little definitional work. I've got a paragraph that I want to share with you from John Perkins that's just a jumping off point um, that I want to put up here and read and then have each of you, uh, Nancy and Sam, to kind of offer your reflections on what do you see here that's, that's really good and that really helps us and maybe what would you add or what's missing or what do we want to nuance, but um, I'm going to have to step forward to be able to read it. Um, Perkins says, I'm sure that my understanding of justice, and I should give a little context. Uh, Dr. Perkins is a, a, a hero in uh, the civil rights movement and somebody who really represents what we've been talking about here, a, a commitment to biblical orthodoxy and a commitment to justice. Um, he said, I'm sure that my understanding of justice is not yet complete, but the best I've been able to discern so far through prayer, study, and much thought is this. Justice is any act of reconciliation that restores any part of God's creation back to its original intent, purpose, or image. When I think about justice that way, it doesn't surprise me that God loves it. I love it too. And I can't wait to see what it looks like when God's redemptive work in the world is complete, when his kingdom has come, and we finally have a chance to live in the relationships with him and one another that he intended for us from the beginning. So guys, if you could leave that slide up there, because I want us just, just to spend some time kind of teasing out some of uh, what Dr. Perkins says here, and then maybe adding to or nuancing things that we might want to see. But the, the essence of it, justice is any act of reconciliation that restores any part of God's creation back to its original intent, purpose, or image. Nancy, you want to take first shot at what do you see here that's worth sort of <laughs> underscoring or highlighting or teasing out? Yeah, um, no, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a really good starting point. I really appreciate that he says, hey, this is a good beginning, and yeah. it, it's not a complete, it's yeah. not yeah. set. It's, and it's really big. Yeah, and There's it is really big, yeah. and I think that's what I wrestled with. I thought, is, is it too big? Does it really help us put, um, you know, some meat in, in this, on this framework? Yeah. But then again, that's what's useful about it, I think, is that it does help us kind of open our eyes to so much that falls under this idea of biblical justice um, that includes things that we would automatically think of, and maybe we'll get to that when we t- talk about the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and things that we just go, how is that justice, like, in our understanding today? Um, so I, I think that's one of, one of the things that I always, I always try to push on, on my theological bent is to say, um, you know, we're not going back to a garden. We're moving forward towards a city. So I always kind of just internally when there's a picture that says we're going back to the original intent because I think that we're really moving forward beyond what we see in Genesis. And I think, you know, this series that we're going through in church is is really kind of helping us 
grapple with that. And so that's, that would be a yeah. really like a theologian's like <laughs> nitpicking of a definition yeah. that's really, really valuable, yeah. I think. Yeah. But it's, and I think he, he gets to that. He says, you know, I, I can't wait to see what's coming. Yeah. And I think what we're going to find is so much greater than what we see yeah. in Genesis. And so it's more, it's more than restoration. It's, it's really setting right. I don't, I don't know how yeah. to say it. I, yeah. I'm just using, I'm using the same words over and over. So I, I think it's helpful. Yeah. yeah. And then we've got to fill in and kind of flesh out what those things mean. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it's based in this idea that the God had a good intent from creation, yeah. but that it's gotten off track, right? We talked from week one, the vandalism of Shalom. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so justice is the pursuit of seeing things set right. But I love, you, you pointed out, it's in here that toward that's the like end, it's like, it, it points ahead to something that's even greater than the garden, right? The garden had God's original intent to be played out ultimately to what we will see eschatologically in the future. Sam, you want to uh, offer any thoughts on terms of things you see here that are worth us underlining or teasing out? I agree with Nancy. And I think that you can, I think a better, not a better, I think Dr. Perkins is great, but I would say that the idea of repair is Mm. so uh, central And here's, I think, why justice is a hard conversation in our context, meaning specifically the American church. It's because there is a sense in which the definition of justice or the understanding of justice is often retributive. Mm. And that's uncomfortable because we are steeped in reformed tradition. And so we have been conditioned to put grace as the highest goal or the highest value. And there seems to be something regressive about retributive justice. But I think about Tease out a little more for us what you mean when sure. you say retributive justice. Uh, the idea that justice is just really more about vengeance. Mm. It's to repay the bad someone. getting what they deserve. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's the, more the cinematic kind of version of justice, yeah. which in some ways can be quite tempting to want to pursue because yeah. yeah. it is cathartic. Yeah. But that's not what biblical... Uh, there's, a t- there's an arc, and I think that's where Nancy's point is really important. Yeah. We're not going back. It's not regressive, but it's, an, it's a redemptive arc. And repair is an essential part of that. And so I think repair and restoration are good ways to frame it in keywords, yeah. uh, more so than retribution. That's good. Yeah. yeah, so sometimes it seems we shrink down the concept of justice to sort of merely retribution, merely the bad guys getting right. what's coming to them. And what I think we're, we're pointing to here is, biblically speaking, it's, it is that, there is that element. Even in that verse that is, the Lord loves justice, it, there's reference there to the bad guys getting what they deserve. But there's so much more than merely that. And I wonder, Nancy, to, to then add on to or to um, expand what we have here, any thoughts in terms of nuances that you would want to see included as we think about what, what justice really is all about? Yeah, I, I think part of the, the struggle I have is this idea of original intent. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just too, um, it, it doesn't really give me a picture, mm-hmm. right? And it's, and I mean, it's kind of in the postmodern sense to say, well, whose original intent? Mm-hmm. What original intent? And so I think that's part of it where I think the biblical um, narratives are, you know, the biblical texts are very important to us because they actually do put in some meat in there yeah. as to what is what is it that it, what what does this actually look like mm. and whether yeah i think i'm going to stop there yeah yeah <laughs> the, but no, so 
it, it, it needs a picture to go with it. I think and so. We, and we have those pictures, as we'll talk about in a minute, when we get to some specific texts, we have some of those specific kinds of pictures that are laid out for us um, as we make our way through the scripture. And then ultimately seeing right, the restoration of shalom at the end of, right, that, that, that one day things will be fully and finally and definitively set right. Yeah, I'm going to say the, the, the obvious is for me, it's hard to argue with John Perkins. Yeah. I, I don't want to be that person. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to argue with him. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to build on it. But, you know, if, if it's anything, it's just to say he's really laid a, a nice foundation. We've already kind of, Sam and I have already kind of said, you know, these are the areas where yeah. we would Nuance maybe it. Yeah, nuance right. it or different or different the emphasis that yeah. we put on there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you had an interesting concept. We talked a little bit about it the other day, and then you mentioned it just before, just the connection of justice and, and grace. And how do we sort of see that playing out? Oh, um, yeah. I, was, I thought that I would come up later oh, in, in well, specific we can, we areas. Can package, yeah. We can package. No, but the, I think part of, um, well, this gets me to, to a different, you know, um, Sam talked about retributive justice versus restorative justice. And I think part of the, part of the, the, what makes a conversation about biblical justice difficult is because I think it's so detached from modern, current ideas of justice. And so I think when we think of justice today, we really think about fairness and um, getting what you deserve. And um, and so I've, I've got this picture in my head of, you know, um, Lady Justice. So if you've seen Lady Justice, she's this personification of justice with a blindfold and holding scales in one hand and a sword in the other. And the idea is that justice is blind. It, she shows no partiality and everyone, everything's equal. She weighs her decisions and, um, you know, weighs it uh, fairly. And then her decisions are swift and final. And I think in that respect, we really have to nuance that idea because we think, well, justice is getting you what you worked for and what you deserve and what is right and everything's equal. And it all sounds nice until you start thinking about the playing field out there and realize it's not. So I think what we find in scripture is not, not a blind justice, but an, like a justice with, with eyes wide open that is really, you know. And so sometimes I think what we see is something that to us may sound a little bit more like grace than it does current perceptions of justice. I think Sam was, you were kind of touching on that yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, because, um, and, I, and I think that's where in the Old Testament, everything that you see related to justice, the word mishpat, it's gonna be inextricably tied to tzedakah, righteousness. And so that's really important. What Nancy's saying is exactly right. It's not about an arbitrary standard of equality. It's actually a plumb line and a yardstick that God holds. And his righteousness becomes the standard by which you are deemed to either be just or not. So a really simple way to distill kind of what you think of as justice from Old Testament perspective is to set things right when they have been wrong and to maintain right when it is right. So it's not about necessarily being fair. Um, so although one of the images you'll see throughout the Old Testament is the idea of scales, 
and unjust weights and scales is a major metaphor. But again, it's not uh, about arbitrary fairness. That's actually right. It's about fairness from in the standpoint of doing what is right. Mm. And so tzedakah, righteousness, is the underlying idea that you cannot... If you try to separate them, both would die. Mm. It's, like, it's like trying to remove the heart from someone and saying, just beat, and it, it won't. And so... Uh, that's really helpful, what Nancy's saying. And you, you, I'm sorry, just to jump on that, you see the same thing in the New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. So the word for that's sometimes um, translated as righteousness can just as easily be translated yep. as justice. So mm-hmm. it's this dikaiosune, right? Mm-hmm. And and so we really, we, we've got to, what we need to do is keep those concepts together. They're, they're tied together. What is just and what is righteous? And I think we'll see that as we talk about the law. Um, and that's a really, that's a really great, great way of understanding it, right? The law and the laws that we have are meant to create a just society. So when we start looking at the scriptures, especially the law, you start going, oh, if, if this is what it means to be just, if this is justice then um, it doesn't really fit with our modern conceptions of justice that have a lot of uh, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps because you've got to earn it kind of thing. That's good. That's good. Well, that transitions as well into actually looking at some passages, both some specific passages and some kinds of passages. And I just want to alert my fellow panelists. I think they gypped us 10 minutes on the clock, so don't get too nervous when you look up there. (laughs) We got plenty of time left. So... um, I, I, and they really did. So you guys, shame on you. So let's talk about some passages um, or some types of passages. Sam, you want to kind of get us started in, in thinking about um, where we would look in the Bible to see some of this? Sure. I, I really wish we had w- a lot more time because then I would love to just take you guys through like dozens of texts. But I can't do that in the interest of time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to paint a picture for you and create a framework. And I hope that will be really helpful for you guys to do your own then like kind of work on this question of what is just. And so the framework is this. Um, If you look in the Old Testament, what you will find is that the entire way God reveals his character and his will for his people in the Mosaic Covenant can be summed up in kind of like this pyramid structure. So at the very top of the pyramid is an arc an overarching, timeless, uh, irrevocable, unassailable truth. And that is our first calling is, and you alluded to this, it's to love God and love your neighbor. Like those two go together and that's at the top. And then right below that, then you have is the Ten Commandments. And these present this wonderful summation of all these legal principles in ten very memorable words where half of it approximately talks about your love for the Lord and the other half talks about how to love your neighbor. And then you have all the case laws. And that's where, you know, you have Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy giving you everyday practical adjudication based on those overarching principles. And you see this replicated in the new. And that's what a lot of people miss. So when Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, he wasn't being poetic. And he wasn't simply just kind of in an offhanded way trying to protect the scriptures. Not at all. What he was saying is, 
I have not changed at all what was given to you at the top. And that's why he said, when they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God. And he repeats the Shema, which is what that is called. And then he gives the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And then you're going, but there's no 10 commandments in the New Testament. And you're right, there is no Decalogue, but you know what you do have in the New Testament is the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And what that is, is Jesus preaching a sermon on the Ten Commandments. Because if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, especially as it's articulated in Matthew, you will find that what he's really doing is preaching a sermon on each of the commandments and magnifying what they really mean and how they look in the New Covenant context. And then you go, well, there's no Deuteronomy for sure. There's no Leviticus. And you're right. Um, And some of you are thankful for that because that's usually where your Bible reading plans get shipwrecked. But guess what? This is where Nancy's work is, uh, comes into play. The epistolary literature is your case law. It is the apostles now living in the new covenant inaugurated reality, taking the Torah and adjudicating it in case after case after case, facing this new church, new people of God. And so that's the structure I want you guys to have in mind as a helpful framework. Now, let me give you an example, though, of why uh, we misunderstand the law so much when it comes to matters of justice. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses has this statement he makes to the people as they're on the verge of entering the promised land finally. And so it's a time of pregnant with expectation and excitement and hope. And he says to them, I'm giving you the law one more time. That's, by the way, what the name Deuteronomy means. It just means second law. And so he says in Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 7, in fact, what other great nation has a God so near to them like the Lord our God whenever we call on him? And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances as just as this whole law that I am about to share with you today? And so a lot of times I used to even think this was just kind of rhetorical flourish. Of course God's law is just better than every other law. But there is actually a substance here that's really easy to miss. So let me give you one example. So in the laws, uh, when he says, what other great nation, if you think about that context of Moses' time, you're probably thinking about Mesopotamian nations um, and then Egypt and Hadi, so the Hittites, that's, they lived in what we call Hadi. And so And then before the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians, there were the Sumerians. And they were the first great nation because they were the ones who introduced writing. So there is two law codices that precede the Mosaic law. One is called the Laws of Eshnunna, and that's from around 2000 BC, around 1950 BCE. And then so 2000 years before Christ. And then you have the laws of Hammurabi, which a lot of you are probably like, oh, I know that one. I've heard of that one. So Hammurabi's code comes about 200 years later, much more extensive than the laws of Eshnunna. So Moses is talking about those law codes because this is law codes everyone knows about. And he's saying ours is better. And what does he say? He does not say more holy. He does not say Kodesh. He does not say Kavod. He says more just. 
So now, what does he mean by that? There's a great example. So there are these laws that are in Eshnuna and in Hammurabi and in Moses. So it's a great place for comparison. And they're called the laws of the goring ox. And so um, in Exodus and in the law of Hammurabi and in Eshnuna, what you have is a series of case laws about what do you do if your ox kills somebody or hurts somebody. And you're thinking, what's the big deal? Well, in an agrarian society, this is kind of like case law about car accidents. It happens a lot because slaves work with oxen, owners work with oxen, and then citizens come in contact with oxen. So it happened enough. So there were always going to be questions at the courts about what do I do, just as we have like lawyers today who specialize in ambulance chasing, right? So Eshnuna only distinguish between two types of oxen. They're oxen who did it once, uh, so I call them one-time offenders, and then oxen who did it multiple times. They're the repeat offenders. And there's two types of ways you adjudicate that, because it's two different cases. As far as people, they're only victims that were recognized in Eshnuna and then in Hammurabi were. You're either recognized as a victim if you're free and you own land, free and you don't own land, or you're a slave. That's it. So if a woman gets gored, there is no legal protection. If a child gets gored, there is no legal protection. And here's why. Hammurabi's law especially is adjudicating all of these case law from the perspective of financial or economic power. It's about preserving social caste. And so if the wealthy have an oxen that happens to kill a bunch of people, I don't want to penalize that guy. He's one of our high caste people. So we need a way to adjudicate those cases so that his repeat offender oxen is protected under the law. And then you want to give out you do have to recompensate people for their loss. And so if it's a free landowner who gets hurt or killed, you have to pay him a lot. If it's a free person without land, you pay him a little less. If it's a slave, you only have to really pay the person who owned that slave whatever that slave was worth to you economically. It wasn't based on any sense of human value or human life. Moses brings this same law into the Mosaic law, except he now adjudicates for when women are injured and killed and even when children are injured and killed. And he does not differentiate between slave and free. And so Moses, his version of the law, and here's the one that really kind of was like, wow to me, he says, if your oxen is a repeat offender, we stone it. Here's why. The lives you protect in doing that are worth more than whatever that oxen was worth to you. You see, when Moses says in Deuteronomy 4 that these, who else, what other great nation has a law as just as ours? He wasn't just using rhetorical flourish. He meant it. He knew the law. He served in the Egyptian courts. He was familiar with Hammurabi. And he knew that what the, the Torah that the Lord had given him was more just. It was more protective. It was better. That's good. Wow. That's good. Can I say, oh, 
Only a biblical scholar thinks that people know the code of Hammurabi, <laughs> Hammurabi. or the law of Hammurabi. <laughs> you know, all of us know the code yeah. of Hammurabi. This is it's the okay. one you've heard of. Even if you, you didn't, know. I hope that that made sense. Yeah. That's so good. That's so I good. I hadn't gotten a biblical scholar joking yeah. yet. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We gotta, you got to take our chances. I had one passage from the Old Testament that I, that I um, thought of in thinking about this tonight. You could talk about kinds of passages and the particular passages, but my Bible I have opened to Isaiah chapter 1, and here the Lord is speaking through the prophet to his people, and he says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, listen to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, he's not actually talking to Sodom and Gomorrah, he's talking to his people. If you know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah, these are, these are not the good guys, right? And so he's calling his people Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams, of fattened animals, of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come and appear before me, who asks this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Now, pause right there. What is going on? All of these things that that the Lord speaking through the prophet, God himself is saying, all these acts of worship and devotion, all your, we, we, we talk about spiritual disciplines. All your spiritual disciplines, I can't stand them. Right? And These are all things that God himself had commanded the people to do. And God is now looking at all of that and saying, I hate it with all my being. Your prayers, I'm not listening to. I hide my eyes from you. Why would God say that about things that he commanded his people to do? Here's what it says. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Listen, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the case of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. God says to his people, all your spiritual disciplines, all your worship assemblies, all your Sabbath days, all your your prayers are meaningless to me. In fact, beyond meaningless, I detest them. If you keep doing all that and you're not bearing the fruit of love and justice, if you're not caring for the, the, the marginalized, the, the poor and the oppressed, that, that, that kind of stuff ought to cause us to tremble because we love our spiritual disciplines. We love us some worship gatherings, right? We love praying prayers and doing our quiet time. And yet God says to the people of Israel, all that stuff is meaningless. In fact, beyond meaningless if you're not doing justice. Nancy, you had some, uh, some passages or kinds of passages you were thinking about with this? Yeah, when I heard Sam speak, I was kind of smiling over here because I just love the, like he was making all of my points for me ahead of time. <laughs> so he's, you know, so I, I'm coming here and I'm, I've got like Matthew six thirty three where Jesus says, hey, seek first the kingdom of God and its justice. And then all these things will be added. So we're kind of coming at it, I think, from a similar mm-hmm. perspective that there is just a, um, when 
you know, one of the stories I've got here is um, a tax, no, a Pharisee, a, a student of the law comes to Jesus, right? And he says, hey, and Sam talked about this a little bit. What is the greatest of the commands, right? And what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus is going to say, love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so I was really wrestling with this because I thought, is that what I'm, are we saying that justice is love your neighbor by your, as you love yourself? And I think that really biblical justice can, is summed up in that. He's saying all of the laws of all the scriptures, what God has had given his people to um, set up a just society is summed up in this idea, love your neighbor as yourself. Unfortunately, what's happened is we've kind of thwarted some of that to divorce it from any real action and just kind of kind of made it into touchy-feely theoretical, which is really sad because what we see in the scripture is actually this radical um, application of Christ's teaching that begins with Christ. And then as Sam had said, we find then in the epistles, they get worked out in different ways. So um, one of the passages I thought was really interesting, and this is one of those sections that I thought, when we read this, when we hear it preached, are we really think about it, thinking about it as justice? So I'm in Matthew 12, 8. This is where it starts. And uh, I bet your, your little um, Bible or app might say Lord of the Sabbath as the title for that little pericope, which is just a fancy way of saying section. And, um, and that's great. I just wish it would say Lord of the Sabbath and justice. And, um, and so here's the story. Basically, Jesus comes into the synagogue. This is what he does. This is how he rolls. And the Pharisees come to him to test him. And so they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus' response is, it is, law, is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So he turns to, there's this man with a withered hand. He turns to him and he says, stretch out your hand. The man does and his hand is restored. And usually there, there's the preaching and we talk about Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath and that's very true and all of that is theologically faithful and everything. But Matthew gives us actually in the following passage the way to interpret this entire section. And this is what he says. He says, this happened so that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet will be fulfilled. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul delights, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, not cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bent reed he will not break off and a dimly burnt, burning wick he will not extinguish until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And I think that's one of those passages that should really adjust, arrest us and go, justice? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but that's what I got the first time I read it. And I'm going, how is this about justice? Because I see Jesus healing a man in, um, in the synagogue with, with the synagogue. And I see it as, as also, I see it as grace. I see it as charity. I see it as love, but my mind doesn't go to justice. And yet the scriptural writers, the people that were with Jesus, Matthew says, this is about justice. And so it really, that's where you kind of see this connection um, in our early conversation, Sam said, I think we're neo-Marcionists. And that is just an uber nerdy way of saying, uh, man, I'm getting all the jobs in. Um, but a really cool theological way of saying, we divide the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. We, we do this... Um, 
we are guilty of, of thinking like Marcion, who said, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love, and these are two different beings. And what you actually see here, time and time again, is this connection of the Old Testament to the New, the fulfillment of the law in the way that Christ lives. And so his, his ministry on earth, when you see, when you read Jesus going out into the crowds, healing the sick, um, uh, uh, thank you, casting out demons, feeding the hungry. Um, all of this is an act of justice. This is Jesus Christ inaugurating the justice of the kingdom of God. And it takes place right here. And it's very, it, and it's not, it's not because it's earned. It's not because, you know, it's rightfully yours. It's because God's justice really turns our ideas of justice on their heads. It's, it's yeah. about subverting the way that the structure is. Yeah. So um, did you have yeah, no, Well, I just, you mentioned the, the Matthew, it's been mentioned a couple times now, um, seek first the kingdom of God and his, and it's often translated as righteousness. And what sometimes happens is, again, we shrink that word righteousness down to sort of morally upright living, Right. As though Jesus is saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his morally upright living. And no, he's, it's saying so much more than that. And that idea of righteousness, it, it, it can oftentimes be translated the same word, justice. It is that idea of setting things right. And even what Jesus does with the guy with the shriveled hand is he makes it right. He sets it right in accordance with, with, um, with God's intention. Yeah, and what we see there is like you we've got to connect what's happening in this man's life beyond the text, right? We get this little snippet because we can't fit everything that happens. And we don't see what happens to this man who now doesn't have a shriveled arm, who now can go out and work and support his family and do all of these things that he's not been able to do. And in that way, it's kind of it 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 starts this trickle effect that really impacts you have to think this man, his his um, his household, which is like a tiny community, not so tiny sometimes, and then the community beyond that. So I think it's really great. One of the things that we see, I'm, I'm just going to yeah. sneak this one in, is Luke. Um, part of it is kind of the, there's this very clear understanding that the world is not as it should be. And, the, uh, and so Luke 7, 28, we've got this passage where it says, I, you know, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then it says, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice. And this is this uh, reversal of fortunes that you see is justice personified in the New Testament. Those that are disenfranchised, women, widows, slaves, um, Children, in many ways, they actually, there's a reversal of fortunes there, and that is setting it up. And so what we see in the epistles is this playing out. So the answer to the broken socioeconomic systems of Rome is the church. So good. I think that's a great segue for us then to, to try to bring some of this to application to some things that we see and need to address in our contemporary uh, society, some kind of application of this uh, biblical theology of justice, particularly around issues we've already addressed, but we can talk a little bit more about race. And it's interesting, I think back to, we looked at the, the uh, words of Dr. Perkins, um, any act of reconciliation. And again, I think oftentimes we shrink that word down as the reconciliation is merely between individuals. And yet what we see biblically is it's so much more 
than merely between individuals. And so when we talk about issues of race, that yes, there, is, there are aspects in which um, reconciliation is, does play out relationally, but it, it's more, so much more than merely that. So uh, Nancy, I wonder, you've used a framework with me in the past in some of our conversations that just was super helpful, that I wonder if you could lay out, and then Sam, I'd love to hear you kind of play off of that and, and uh, expand on some of that. So uh, talk to us about, you, you kind of have used these three C words, it's, it's to, to comfort, to, con- to correct and to confront. Can you kind of? Yeah, so this was framed within the role of the church, the of the church. In, yeah, in racial reconciliation. And so one of the things that I said is this, these, these are kind of movements that we need to really be about as, as the people of God. And one is to comfort those who have borne and bear the sting of racial injustice. The other is to correct the understanding, beliefs, biases, and actions that participate knowingly or not in racial injustice and then perpetuate racial injustice. Um, And then it's to confront. And this was actually, I wanted to use the word confront in a positive way because I don't think that we really use it. Usually we think of confrontation as negative, but really to confront our communities and our world with a more beautiful way that reflects the reconciling work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's, and I think that when people see that, that does confront them. I think that it really has this tendency to go, wait, what's happening? This, this is not the way that I'm used to things working out. So that's the, that's the kind of sense of confront that I really had in mind there. Yeah. So to me, that's a really helpful framework for thinking about what is the, what is the role of the church in living this out in very real kinds of ways. Sam, you want to chime in on that? Any? Sure. Um, a couple of things. I think that, um, so one, one of the hot topics you hear a lot about is, is systemic injustice or systemic racism real? And you're going to get a lot of pushback because we're coming at it and from in such an individualistic concept of righteousness. But I will say that if you really trace what's going on with injustice in the Old Testament, what you find that it's, it's rarely being addressed at the level of individuals. It's almost always at the level of systems. So who does God uh, commission to be the agent of justice in the ancient Near East? It's the king. It's not, he's not saying all of you guys should just stop saying bad words about each other and stop being racist. No, what he says is that it begins at the top with the king. You are my agent. You are my vice regent. And it was intended all the way from creation to be that way. Um, and so you see that... Uh, But the other thing I want to help you guys to kind of start thinking about is, I I don't have enough time looking at the clock to do a uh, full-blown argument to convince you, but I will say this, I am convinced that what you will find as one of the primary forces that drives oppression, including racial injustice, in the Bible and in our world today is mammon. And what I mean by mammon, so we, again, individualize mammon and really distill it down too much. We turn it into materialism, and that's really not what mammon is talking about. There is only one thing in the Sermon on the Mount that God says, or Jesus preaches about and says, you can either serve God or blank. And it's, it's not about sex. It's not about any other form of immorality. He says it's about mammon. 
And it's this idea that there is an animus behind our greed and our desire for power. And it's because money represents so much more than material. It represents freedom from a worldly perspective. It gives you security from catastrophe. It gives you the freedom to make choices for yourself. It is the material manifestation of autonomy. So, so much of the oppression you see in scripture is actually about economic power, balance, and then using that against others. And so, if you understand that, you will, it will make so much more sense why throughout the prophets, the prophets keep coming back to saying, here's what God's really upset about. It's not your worship at the temple. It's the fact that you guys keep disobeying what I said at the very start about freeing debt slaves, about caring for the poor. And so you keep seeing the repetition of that quartet of landless people, the widow, the orphan, the uh, um, poor, and the foreigner. And Jeremiah repeats it. The psalmists repeat it. And so what, it'll help you to understand what it means when we look at America's history. The real animus behind slavery wasn't that we kind of randomly just hated people with dark skin and decided we just need to make their lives miserable. It was actually that they became the engines upon which we could build mammon's empire. And that is the real sin behind slavery and racism. So if you go back to the colonial era and look at the development of the social constructs of race, it was around the same time as the doctrine of discovery being introduced in the Catholic Church and giving European powers free reign to just run throughout the earth and say, I don't care that you're here. We're civilized. You are not. And so we claim this land for ourselves. And with that land comes you. Your lives now become the engines by which we will bring fruit from this earth without the sweat of our brows but yours. And so if you understand that, then you will realize systemic racism is real. Systemic injustices are real. And they, they, they are not coming from a political theory, but rather from just a, a study of scriptures and understanding what actually grieved God's heart. Yeah, that's good. Hearing um, the reference to the colonial era, I know you and I had, had a conversation about something that you wanted to even circle back on from last week. Yes. Um, as it relates um, to what we're talking about. Yeah, and I think this, this kind of holds me accountable to, to this idea of correction. So if you tuned in last week when we talked about... Um, Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan Edwards. I, um, I called his owning of slaves um, a blind spot. And I got off the call and my husband said, hey, that's, that's really putting it mildly. And so I need to apologize because that's wrong. So we need to start calling. Part of correcting our, um, our, our participation in racial injustice is being able to say, hey, I was wrong in that. We have to start calling slave owners and the owning of slaves a blatant sin. And that's what it was. So I just wanted to apologize for that because I I got called out and I needed to be called out and I just want to make that right. I, I feel yeah. like we don't apologize enough yeah. for our mistakes and yeah. I just wanted to kind of yeah. say that. And I um, want to add my words because I think um, I picked up and 
repeated the same kind of idea. And yeah, I mean, you just said it right there, right? This is something that we, uh, wherever we see it, have to point to and, and just acknowledge this is evil. I was going to um, take a shot at Nancy, but I can't now. <laughs> no. Can I say a kind of my yeah. closing thought sure. here? So um, here's where it gets really ugly and hairy when you see these conversations playing out in the real life mess and muck and mire of our lives as American Christians is I think one of the reasons, and I can say this as being Asian American, I kind of get to have like a more of a sideline seat to the black-white conflict in America. And one of the things I see is that white America is terrified of the idea that at some point they will have to pay for this horrible history that they have been part of. And so there is this kind of defensiveness. It's just, it's almost visceral. There, it almost goes without thought. I just don't want to face what justice might look like if we actually had to really own up to this. Um, but that is where biblical justice is different from worldly concepts of justice. Um, the idea of reparations is actually very biblical. I know that's super controversial, but I, and again, I wish I had more time, but I, I will go to the mat and fight you if you want to say it's not. Uh, <laughs> but I will say this, um, but it's never with the idea of being retributive. Mm -hmm. The idea of reparations is in the word itself. It actually comes from the English word to repair. to repair. So in the law, in Leviticus, it says that if you have harmed somebody, and these are not first order sins requiring death, but just civil engagements where somehow someone was wrong, it says you need to pay them this amount as a penalty, and then you add this amount for the harm. And then David had a situation when he became king after a time of drought. He inquired of the Lord, like, why is it a drought in our country? And, and the Lord revealed to him, there is a sin that Saul committed that has not been made right. And so David's response was not, well, I didn't do that, so that's not my problem. He goes to the people who were wronged and he says, what can I do to make it right? And they give him some conditions. And David does not say he doesn't fight them. He says, okay, I will do whatever it takes to repair. Mm. And even when um, uh, the wee little man, Zacchaeus, the sign of his true inclusion in the family of the Abrahamic covenant was that upon becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, he went and said, now I will fulfill the law as it was meant to be fulfilled meaning I will pay you back. But like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to go beyond what the law said because the law never said four times as much. That was him moved by the Holy Spirit saying, I will, I will do this. But let me close with this, sorry. In Isaiah 19, you have this wonderful image and it's purely eschatological. And so in Isaiah, you have these two nations that are archetypes for oppression and evil, Egypt and Assyria. They represent the two great oppressors of God's people in history, Egypt up to the Exodus, and then Assyria up to the fall. And there's Babylon, but I think Babylon is included in the symbolism of Assyria. But I want to read you this little prophetic passage from Isaiah 19. He said, at that time, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And this is way in the future, so we know this isn't literally Egypt and Assyria. And he says, 
The Assyrians will visit Egypt and the Egyptians will visit Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. At that time, Israel will be the third member of the group along with Egypt and Assyria and, it will, and will be a recipient of blessing in the earth. The Lord who commands armies will pronounce a blessing over the earth saying, Blessed be my people, Egypt, and the work of my hands, Assyria, and my special possession, Israel. So here's what I'm trying to say as I close kind of, it's not about retribution. In the end, what God had always been working towards, the ark was always towards restoration, repair, reconciliation. The ultimate picture of justice in the Old Testament is not bloodshed. It's not anger or wrath. It is people who all through history hated each other finally being together, not losing their distinctions, but rather coming together, reconciled, repaired. And the, what joins them is ultimately the worship of the one true God. So good. Thank you, Sam. Nancy, you have any final thoughts you want to offer as we wrap up the night? piggyback on Sam, there's a theologian, Miroslav, Miroslav Wolf, who I've been spending a lot of time with over the last <laughs> 15 months. And what he says is, if you want justice, you have to want reconciliation. In order to arrive at justice, you have to be willing to reconcile. Hmm. And I think that it's a hard way and, and it kind of is going to leave you guys, give you something to think about because we, we tend to want to think Give me justice, and then it'll make reconciliation possible. But he actually says what we see is the true justice, the only way we can really arrive at that is through a desire and a willingness to reconcile with the oppressors. So, right. so um, yeah. That's, yeah. that's the Christ we follow. That's yeah. good. That's good. So we're going to have a chance in a couple of weeks where I'm going to get the opportunity to, to revisit some of even what we've talked about tonight. In two weeks, we'll be doing a session on... Um, the church and culture then and now, and talking about some big uh, issues in our day of um, uh, sexuality and um, life and race and some of these big topics that uh, are uh, stirring in the church and sometimes that get touched on in a sermon, but that I don't have the opportunity to do like what we've been doing here. And so I'm going to be back in two weeks and spend the whole time, just me kind of walking through some of those issues. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about the meaning of the cross. This coming Sunday, we're talking about Jesus, the climax of the, of the biblical story. And so we're going to come back next Thursday night and talk about the meaning of the cross. Nancy's going to be back and joining me for that conversation next week, but she's just been such a, a joy and a blessing for me to get to partner with. Can we just say thanks to Nancy tonight? Thank you, guys. Sadly, as I think you heard maybe at the beginning of the time together, this is Sam's last night of the series. I'll tell you the truth. When I first thought of this idea, I wanted to ask these two people to do all eight weeks with me, and I just felt like that was asking too much. And so they've been very, very generous with their time to be a part of this thing with me together. But this is the last night that Sam's going to be with us. But can we just say thanks to Sam for all of that he's contributed? So, So good. You're, you're perpetuating this stereotype that Old Testament people don't know about Jesus and don't, don't care. Uh-oh. I am sort of playing into that, aren't I? All right. I think we got some questions. Camille?
We have questions. Chad is going to put on the screen for us. Let's hit this giant bowl next to you. <laughs> okay, so it says, do you get the sense that the concept of justice has been hijacked by our culture? How are we to dif differentiate between biblical justice and cultural ideas of justice? Who wants to start? <laughs> I mean, Sam, we've got, we've got to get as much of Sam as possible <laughs> last night. I would say that um, my, my caution about trying to separate them too much is that if you're using that as a way to evade justice, then I would say that that's not in the spirit of what the scriptures and what following Christ looks like. But there is a fair conversation to be had about the differences. Yeah. Because as Nancy said, uh, correct, I think a good measuring stick, a good way to generally just say, is, hey, is this kind of a political or cultural thing, or is this kind of something I as a Christian can support? I think a good one is, first of all, I mean, you can obviously just measure it against Scripture mm -hmm. and just say, am I fighting for something here that I think that scripturally would be supported. Um, but the other thing you can look at it is, is um, in the moment, it may look retributive, but is there kind of an arc here towards ultimately restoring and repairing? Um, and if that's the case, I think that that's a, it's a safe way to get involved. Like, you know, I, I got into some really heated conversations for being at a Black Lives Matter <clears throat> event a few years ago. And, and the way I just framed that for the people who were troubled by that is um, my issue is not, I'm not here necessarily to say that everything that the organization stands for is what I stand for. But in this moment and in this place, they are taking action to try and confront something that has truly grieved God's heart. And in that, I will stand with them. And I think as believers, we haven't done enough of that because we, uh, it's what Barry illustrated so well at the very beginning. That's what Pharisaism did a lot was, here's the law, actual line that, that God draws for us. And then we are so scared of flirting with crossing that line, we take 10 steps back and then we just live here. And I, I would just say, like, let's take some risks, you know. And, yeah, uh, I think part of what happens part of why people get really nervous about this is particularly what you'll hear is the, 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 the sort of scare word is social justice. Mm -hmm. And part of the concern is legitimate in that concern that if, is this based in Marxist ideology. And there are absolutely reasons for us as biblically committed Christians to, to reject or critique Marxist ideology. Um, so there's a legitimate concern, there's a legitimate critique, but what happens is then this concept of social justice is just painted in very broad strokes as Marxist and therefore must be rejected. Social justice is bad. All social justice is inherently Marxist. Um, and so that's why we've been really trying hard tonight to talk about biblical justice. What does the Bible say about justice? But here's what you have to acknowledge at the end of the day. When you talk about what the Bible says about justice... It is inescapably social. It affects mm -hmm. social networks, social systems. Um, there is no individualized justice. Yes, there is individual reconciliation between peoples. And yet, the outworking of this set rightness impacts 
more than mere interpersonal relationships. It impacts um, societies. Yeah. yeah, I think if, if I were to say um, things to be wary of the way that the culture might be speaking about justice is... One, I think it goes, it airs in two extremes. One is the extreme that says, can't we just get past this and love each other and not actually move toward any kind of restoration? The other says it really emphasizes the retributive part of it and divorcing itself from real re reconciliation. I just want you to pay for what you've done and I don't want a relationship with you. So in those two ways, when you hear either one of those extremes, that, that should raise red flags because if reconciliation is not part of the idea of justice, it, it's not biblical in any sense of the word. We are, we are reconciling people, <laughs> reconciliation people. Um, that's the gospel we preach. And so if any, any idea of justice that you're kind of listening to, if that's absent, if those two things are separated, the, the actually making things right towards reconciliation, then it's not biblical. It's good. It's good. Thank you, guys. Um, our next question says... Am I on? Okay, there you go. How can I rightly pursue God's justice without judging others and violating the command in Matthew 7, mm. 1 through 3? Mm. Judge not lest you be judged, right? How should we think about that? Anybody? Well, okay, I always get in trouble for that one because <laughs> I'm, I'm an Enneagram 1, I'm an INFJ, I'm a you know, DISC D, very strong. All the things that, that say that this is, this is just going to be in my nature. Uh, part of it is the don't judge others is, is directed towards unbelievers, right? Like we, we don't have the same standards for believers as we do for unbelievers. And so that's, that's really serious. If you see a believer, and this is repeated over and over in the epistles, you see a believer that's acting in a way that does not reflect Christ. You aren't just to be like, oh, you know, don't judge lest you be judged. You're supposed to totally call that person out and be like, hey, this is not this is not acting in line. Which is what Jesus does all the time, right? Absolutely. So it's not, not being morally discerning, right? Jesus calls out, this is wrong. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, and so, and the other thing is that God's justice, like, what we've got to just accept the fact that if, if the moment you accept the idea that there is such a thing as God's justice and that God's justice can be known, you're going to be like fighting a losing battle, culturally speaking, because it's just not, it's just not acceptable. And part of that is for really legitimate fears that say, well, how do you get to decide what is, you know, what God is saying? And the way that we kind of counteract that is to say, you know what, God's word is inspired my interpretation of God's word and God's command is not. God is fallible. I am not I, infallible. Uh, I am. See, fallible. see, I already <laughs> did it. God is infallible Pretty and I important. am not. And yeah. I think that's part of a, if any kind of moving, moving into to judging others. Um, I think that really has to come with a lot of discernment, a lot of carefulness, and it's got to come from a place of love. So if you can go... Am I really saying this because I love this person or am I saying it because I want, I'm right and I want them to know I'm right? And I will be the first to admit, man, I really struggle with it. I love being right. 
I'm a one. Ask Barry. <laughs> I remind him of how right I am all the time. It's made a very interesting mentorship relationship. So good. Sam, because I want to just explicitly acknowledge that you're an Old Testament scholar who does believe in Jesus and knows a thing or two. You, you want to comment on this too? Yeah, I think some of that is misunderstanding the verse itself. Mm. It's misread often. It's talking about condemnation. It's that no, none of us have the ability to actually condemn somebody. Yeah. But to dis... So part of it's because of English. English You're talking is talking about condemned to hell. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah just in, to clarify. Yeah, English is a messy language. And so... There is not a, when we use the word judge, it has baggage in English that it doesn't have in Greek. And so we misunderstand that. Mm -hmm. So as Barry said, we are, otherwise the prophets would never have the ability to say even a word. Mm -hmm. But that's not what it's saying. We use the word judge simply to say, hey, if you like even call me out on something I've done wrong, you're judging me. But that's not what it is in the Greek. Yeah. So helping, that, that kind of nuance will help you. Yeah. So it gets misused all the time as a way to just fend off any sense of accountability. That's um, but that's really not how the spirit or the meaning of the original text. Mm, that's good. That's good. Thank you. Our next question says, how can we defend God as just when we see that he destroyed cities and helped the Israelites conquer cities in scripture? Yeah, so this one needs an hour and 15 minutes all on its own. And at some point, I think we do need to come back and do that because it didn't get an hour and 15 minutes uh, in this particular series, but we do need to, to be able to address it. Anybody want to jump in and offer just a, a few brief initial thoughts? Um, gosh, it's really hard to do it any justice without really setting up a context for for what's going on and kind of the severity of, of sin that we see in, in some of the nations that God judges. Yeah. Um, and so um, Miroslav Volf, he, he lived during the Serbian War, he's Croatian, and one of the things that he says is people think that um, pouring out this kind of judgment is, is wicked and bad and how could you want that? But if you're on the receiving end of... Um, genocide and extermination and all of that, you really hope that God is paying attention and yeah. is actually going to set right those who have you know, per perpetrated grievous sins against you. It's, that's, I feel like that's a really messy thing to say when, I, when you can't, con like you'd you have to right. sit with yeah. like these passages that are yeah. heavy and weighty. So I'm I, gonna do yeah. what every theologian does and throw it back to the <laughs> biblical scholar. Um, and I do want to just, I'm going to commit publicly, we're going to spend a night doing this at some point, because okay. I, I think it needs yeah. that. Um, so, yeah, I, this, is a, this is one of my, um, it's one of the more harder conversations I'll have often with people, and, and it's because I'm, I'm, I'm an OT guy, and they'll, they'll just be like, I just don't get it. So I don't know if I'll convince you, but I will at least try to, as Nancy said, uh, give you some context. So first of all, what you will find is that there's never an instance in which God just capriciously uh, brings down violence upon anyone. So it's never like, gosh, you just annoyed me, boom. And, and that's, that's very kind of a popular culture image of God. In every instance where you see some sort of physical judgment brought upon a location, there is a process by which they are given opportunities to repent. So that, that is important. It may not satisfy your sensibilities, but it is true that God always gives people a chance to turn before he ever brings any kind. The second thing is related to Wolf. By the way, I'm a big fan of his. 
And what some of the actions you see God takes are actually what I would call not justice, but protective action. So if there, it's the reason you stone the ox that is the repeat offender. So if your ox kills somebody once in Exodus 21, you don't have to kill that ox because it's a very valuable asset and you, you don't want to just take that away for no reason. But once it becomes a repeat murderer, you stone it. And the reason is it's not because you're mad at the ox and you're taking vengeance. It's because you do not want another life to be harmed by that rogue ox. And it's the same way God treats the nations. It's like if you keep tormenting people. So if you look at whom God does judge, um, it, it is usually for some pretty heinous um, things done against other people. So it's protective in a sense that if I let you just go on and keep doing what you're doing, more people get hurt. Or in some cases, for example, you go, well, sometimes it seems like he does it for idolatry. Yeah, but it was in the case when the idolatry included things like human sacrifice. So there is a protective element to the way God uh, handles those type of situations. So um, I don't know if that necessarily satisfies, but it is at least, it helps to give some rhyme and reason to what's going on there. Mm. Uh, but as I said in Isaiah 19, God's heart, though, is ultimately for the long arc of the universe to always bend ultimately towards restoration, repair, and reconciliation. That's good. That's good. Well, I just want to say, anytime you guys want to crash young adults and do this topic, <laughs> we will let you come All in right. and do it again. Um, but before we let you go, we do want to do a drawing for Dr. Wan's book, <laughs> Sam's book. Can I just then, say that... Um, I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> and number two, I don't, who, who won the f last copy? From the couple was, I'm so sorry. So if you want to sell that at half price or you want to gift it to somebody, you absolutely feel free to do that. Um, and whoever wins tonight, I am so sorry. Because like, Dr. Jones's book is Dwell. Like, how many of you guys read Barry's book, Dwell? Oh, well, let's not do a raise of hands. So. Okay. That is a book you should give away. Like, that's a great book, and I would want all of you to read it. But my book is not. So I, I am I'm so sorry. That, Sam, because these people are intelligent, and they will get the scholarly things, <laughs> and we want the rich richness because we're going deep that's this right. whole the whole year, so, exactly. the whole so year. I just reject that. There we go. Okay, yeah. I like that. I reject That's the premise. Good. Yeah. Well, I, my offer still stands. You can <laughs> sell it to Half Price Book, and I will not be offended. <laughs> well, we are going to do a drawing, so will you? I don't know why I'm looking away. They're folded. One of the first times I've found my Katie book Ward. What's in Half Price Book? I'm sorry, Katie. <laughs> Katie's really gonna love it. Am. Katie will love it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she's she's in grad school. She's gonna read it though. Um, yes, she's grad school. I do have to say that um, when I was telling young adults that it was your last night, there was visible uh, frowns and lots of groaning <laughs> because no. we've loved having you here. I will say you're an Old Testament professor. You know, um, you've got all of this scholarly knowledge, but you have made it so accessible for us. Wow. You all have, and we have appreciated the fact that you have allowed us to go deep and taught us 
such rich theology and history and the biblical story. And so we are so thankful that you have been with us and we have a gift for you. Oh man, you guys didn't have to do that. Uh, I'm going to okay. start getting all emotional now. So we have a card, first of all. And then the second thing is that you are an honorary young adult forever. You guys don't know how much that means. When you're my age, that actually is. That's a, that's a bomb to the soul. Thank you. Seriously, anytime you want to come back, we would love to have you back. And Thanks. we're so excited to hear from you guys next time, next week. Um, Dr. Juan is like the OTOG. Yes. I said that right. Yes. right? Said, yeah, that's right. Okay. Do you know it. what that means? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know it's the good. old part. <laughs> or, or, no, no, it, it's original gangster, but yes. I'll wear it. I'll wear it. OTOG, I love it. Okay, let's give these guys another round of applause Thank before we dismiss. And just a little housekeeping item. If you are a young adult and you would like to be a part of our discussion groups, they happen as soon as we end our time here. Um, you can tell Serena, who's out there right now, if you haven't already signed up to be in a group, but we'll be doing those as soon as we dismiss. I want to thank you guys all for coming. Thank you for being a part of this journey with us, and we look forward to seeing you all next week.